God is good all the time. If you are here for the very first time, I want to welcome you. If you are here for the first time in a long time, I would just say welcome home. It is good to see you guys. We're a faith community here. Uh, we do not consist of perfect people, so I thought I'd just warn you. But we are people who are diligently seeking to grow in the love of God and to grow in the love of one another. And if you're interested in an authentic faith community, I think we have that here. And you'd be welcome here. Today I'd like to talk about what it means to forge what I'm going to call grown-up love. Grown-up Christianity, not naive Christianity. Let me tell you what naive Christianity looks like. Somebody goes into a church and expects everyone to be perfect, and the second someone isn't perfect, they quit. That, that's not grown-up anything. I just got to tell you, uh, we've got a lot of people here. And everybody's got their own stuff going, and we're not perfect all of the time. But we serve Christ who's perfect all the time. We don't always love perfectly or love well here, but we serve a God who doesn't know how to not love perfectly. And so this is about that. That being said, I'm going to read you a story. Duquoin, Illinois. Many of you probably have vacationed there. 1984 A.D. Melissa and I married young. She was 19 going on 37, and I was 20 going on 12 and a half. <laughs> Despite our despairing maturity levels, Melissa had learned little about some of the basics of living. We were married almost a year before I discovered that she had been throwing away all of our bank statements and canceled checks with the junk mail. Thinking back, it's pretty clear we failed to negotiate responsibilities around the house. I kind of fell into my parents' leave-it-to-beaver arrangement as a default, but since she grew up in a single household, she had really no template at all. We both had a few holes I had a teaching job interview coming up and had picked my favorite outfit to wear, dress to impress, they told me. So I had this light blue button-down shirt and a pair of Levi's Dockers complete with, with pleats. For some odd reason, I assumed that she knew how to iron. And since my mom was particularly skilled at this area, I had fairly high expectations. Nobody had really ever taught Melissa how to iron, but to her credit, she did the best she could. And when my favorite brownish tan khakis were laid out for me to wear, there were indeed two crisp creases, both on the left leg. <laughs> now, this would be a sensitive situation for a mature person, but that had little to do with me, thinking I was hilarious when I was younger, with my quick wit, I quipped, Melissa, most people only wear a crease on one leg. One crease per leg for most people. I don't remember her response, but all I can tell you is that we will celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary on May 21st 
And she has never once ironed a single thing for me since that day. (laughs) Yes, my friends, I married an awesome woman. (laughs) On the one or two occasions that I've asked her to iron for me, and I try to separate them by at least a decade and a half, she always says, even now, no one likes to do nice things for complainers. (laughs) That was 40 years ago. Do I not get a do-over somewhere? I just got to tell you, what seemed hilarious then does not seem hilarious now. And who would have ever thought when we were dating she would have that kind of memory? I learned a lesson in grown-up love. I learned a lesson, and the lesson is you're really better off to keep your big mouth shut. And you're seldom as funny as you think you are, because every now and then you run into somebody that has a very good memory. When you hike unfamiliar trails, it's occasionally a good idea to regain your bearings. A good way to do this is to find some high ground that offers a view and and study it for a bit. Just exactly where am I? Which way is north? How much further do I have to go? So I want to do that with Philippians. We've been in this for a little bit. I want to do that with Philippians. Let's just climb a tree and get our bearings. When Paul was first put under house arrest in Rome, the Philippian church was quick to act on his behalf. The incarceration of Roman citizens like Paul could be made much more pleasant with a little financing from the outside. So the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Rome to deliver an offering to Paul that he essentially used to grease the skids of the prison, to buy some needed supplies like pen and parchment, and to assist him. You might think, could Roman prisoners have personal servants? And if they were citizens and had the money, yes, they could. In time, Paul sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi, carrying this letter that we're studying right now. It's a letter filled with love and gratitude. It it stands in sharp contrast to the critiques and admonishments that Paul wrote to churches elsewhere that were experiencing problems. Paul's loving on the Philippians, not shoving on them. Godly love defined Paul's relationship to the Philippians. And godly love is to be the defining characteristic of our church and of our relationships with each other. A grown-up kind of love. Verses 8 and 9. God knows how much I love you. And long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more. And that you'll keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. What a beautiful prayer. Is there anybody else that's just still growing? You know, just just still growing. Love springs from Paul's heart as he thinks about the shared memory and the shared history that he has with his church. When he thinks about the compassion and kindness, they continue to show him in his humble state. With nothing but time on his hand, the Holy Spirit pings Paul to unpack what he's feeling. So he gives us this incredible gift. What are the 
indicators, the characteristics of genuine Christian love. This is such a gift to us because it's going to teach us how we need to relate to one another in the church. Guys, we're getting ready to do an initiative that starts Sunday where we're going to invite all kinds of people to church, and some of them are going to show up. They are, and they're going to be among us, and we need to be ready to welcome them, not just with our processes, but truly welcome them in our hearts. What does it mean to say, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you're going through, you are welcome here. We love you with the love of the Lord. What's that even look like? Well, here we get some characteristics. Number one, characteristic of genuine Christian love is a desire to be together. Christians look forward to going to church. Christians don't have to go to church. They want to go to church. We are sticky, the Jesus who lives in us wants to stick to the Jesus who lives in you and others. The Jesus wants to connect with that part of him that is in other people. We, we, we see Jesus in each other. We, we learn about Jesus from each other. We are drawn together. I want to suggest that if you're a Christian, it gives you more in common than anything else ever could. Anything else ever could. The Jesus in us is what unites us together. So if, if you are in love and acting in Christian love, you will want to go to church. Church isn't something you do if nothing else is on your calendar. Church is why you say no to other things because church is on your calendar. We want to be together. Number two, compassion. You know, compassion works two ways. One is some of you are naturally compassionate. I'm not going to have you raise your hands. And being naturally compassionate gets you in all kinds of trouble. Can I just hear an amen for somebody? It'll just get you over your head. Some of you are not naturally compassionate. And you get in a different kind of trouble. <laughs> you get in a different sort of trouble. When our disdain, maybe even our natural disdain from, for, for people that, that maybe get under our skin a little bit, when our disdain turns into prayer for them, and, and prayer begins allowing us to see them as Jesus sees them, and we begin to develop genuine compassion in our hearts for people that we didn't used to have compassion for, that's an indicator that God's work's being done in us. When you're able to love somebody, you know good and well you couldn't have loved before you met Jesus. That's an indicator that God's love is working in you. Compassion. And number three, prayer. Prayer is a characteristic of love. Yeah, prayer changes things, but prayer also changes us. When I pray for you, God changes me. Christians are to pray for one another and with one another. I spent the last uh, three days in Kansas City. I, I just rolled back in. If I smell like barbecue, that's purely coincidental. Uh, I just rolled back in, but I spent three days with my covenant group. These are a, a group of pastors that we've been friends and, and, and sharing life and, and ministry for years and years and years now. Once a year, we get together and we spend three days. And a part of what we do is we pray for each other. We pray for each other. We pray about what's going on in our lives. Why do we pray for each other? Because we love each other. 
Because we have deep friendships for each other. When Christians are to pray for one another, but we're also to pray with one another. I think far too often we say, well, I'll be praying for you, but we don't. That's why I'm such a huge advocate of just praying on the spot. You know, 100% of the time that you pray on the spot with people, you'll remember to pray. I always tell people, you know, I always, they'll ask me to do something. I'll say, let me do that right now. And they'll say, no, you can do that later. I said, you don't understand. 100% of what I do right now gets done. And I mean the percentages start tailing off quick after that. So let's just get this done. Somebody expresses a need. Somebody has a need. May I pray for you? Do you know I've never been turned down after somebody expressed a need? Why would they express a need if they weren't hurting? That's why they express the need. How you doing? You know, not very well. What do they say if they don't want prayer? Fine. Fine. Which can be translated as beat it. That's fine. You know? But if they say, you know what? I've got surgery coming up this week and I'm pretty nervous about it. Uh, got a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter and it's kind of breaking my heart. You don't think when you say, may I pray for you, that they'll jump at it? Of course they will. They're hurting. We need to pray not just for one another, but we need to pray with each other. If you've got friends that you're in covenant with, there needs to be times that you just go around the circle and just, just you know, what one thing is, is, what one thing in your life most need, do you most need God and then just go around the circle and, and just pray for one another. We, we need to have genuine prayer for each other. I still think one of the most effective witnesses that you can offer an unbeliever is praying with them on the spot when they articulate a need. It's just so easy. Uh, but prayer invites the other person into holy space. And holy space is transforming. It's just transforming. And it's amazing, if you start to listen, people are often inviting us to pray for them. We just don't listen. I was talking to uh, one of our group leaders uh, last week, and I said, how's your group doing? Really good. How are they doing with the That's Good News book study? He said, really good. I said, kind of what phase are they in? He goes, they're in the phase that they're seeing that they're missing lots of opportunities. And I said, that's awesome. He goes, that's what I told him. Because last year, they wouldn't have even known they were missing opportunities. By next year, they'll probably be, be taking advantage of those opportunities to pray for people. We, we're on a continuum. But praying for people is powerful. Just powerful. You ever, you ever read Facebook posts? Those of you that are on social media, you ever read a Facebook post and somebody just... And I always think to myself, that's not what you tell the public. That's what you tell a friend. And then it just occurs to me. I bet they don't have any friends. I bet they don't have any friends. Do you know you can just send that person a message and just type out a prayer for them? Hey, I, I saw that you're hurting. I, I'm just going to type out a prayer for you. Just send it to them. Just send it to them. And guess what? If they respond like, thank you, you can invite them to church then. You can just invite them to church. Hey, Love to have you at church sometime. I mean, just, just really simple stuff, but we pray for each other. The fourth sign of, of Christian community is, is spiritual growth. 
Spiritual growth happens when we step out in faith. Saying yes to the things of God takes us beyond our comfort zones, our past history, and our skill sets. These new situations force us to learn to pray. I mean, how many of you, when you said yes to 500, started praying a lot more intensely? Lord, I signed up for this. I don't have a chance without you. It, it gives us an opportunity to hear from God, to dig into the word, and to grow up and to mature in our faith. Some years ago, we had a person on our leadership team who approached me with a resignation letter in hand and said to me, I'm done. Leading shouldn't be this hard. And I accepted the resignation first. I didn't want them to change their mind. But I accepted the resignation first. And then I said, why would you possibly think that? Have you never read the New Testament? Leading for Jesus and his church in a fallen world is the very definition of hard. Staying faithful through the hard is how Christians grow in faith. Staying faithful through the hard is how you grow in a marriage. Staying faithful through the hard is how you grow in a friendship. You stay faithful through the hard. And that's when you grow. Number five is just a desire for knowledge. My dad tells a story when he was a young pastor in the early days of the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s. Young people flocked to his church. If you saw Jesus Revolution, we lived that. Jill and I lived that when we were kids right here in the Midwest. But young people flocked to his church, but their lives were a mess. They were a mess. They were addicts and they were immersed in drug culture and free love and the occult. I mean, these kids were messed up. And to make matters worse, a good hunk of them came from unstable homes, which meant there wasn't a solid foundation under there anywhere to build on. And when my dad began to engage in what he called the drug kids, they didn't have t-shirts, but he did call them that. They began to ask a simple question that propelled him into the spirit-filled life. They said, your deacons can't even give up smoking cigarettes. How can they tell us how to give up drugs? So dad went to his deacons and he said, guys, I got great news. You quit smoking and uh, we're going to have a revival here. They said, we can't quit smoking. Not a chance. And dad says at that point, I knew I needed the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Because nothing they taught me in seminary, nothing they taught me in psychology classes in college was able to have the power to change those lives. I needed the Holy Spirit in my life. You see, the, with these type of situations... When we get over our head, when you start inviting people to church, you are occasionally going to get somebody dump more on you than you want. It's like you're fishing and you're in a boat and like the biggest, ugliest fish jumps out of the water with teeth about that big and it's just chomping at you. I mean, that happens from time to time. And right then, you know, you kind of say, Lord, I don't have a chance here. I don't have a chance here. And it's then... And we're in conversations, and, and we, we kind of run out of soap. And it's then we, we know that we, we need to grow. We need to grow in our understanding. So that's the next one, uh, just a desire for understanding. 
just to understand. We, we won't reach people for Jesus if we don't love them. And we won't love them until we have some understanding of them. I want to suggest the price we pay to have people hear our stories is listening to their stories. That's how much it costs. Talking at people strengthens our positions. Listening to people develops empathy and equips us to do authentic ministry. And sometimes they say stuff you don't want to hear. Sharing faith and honestly conversing about faith with unbelievers lets us know what we don't know. It exposes weak places in our own belief system. It drives us into the word of God. And even if today's faith conversation with a non-believer maybe was less than spectacular, you can go home and put in the work and next time be in a better position. Be in a better position. There's just a desire to understand. The more you minister, the more you will realize that you need to know. And that's what drives us into the word. Why are a lot of people not hungry for Jesus? Because they never exercise. They just walk around the buffet and complain about the food. Man, you're out there talking to people about Jesus, inviting people to church, have conversations. You're going to be hungry when you get to church. You're going to need more than you've got. So there's a desire for understanding. You know, I attended a relatively liberal seminary, and if you ask why, I would simply respond, I, I truly felt God led me there. As the decades have passed, my liberal education has served me reasonably well. I didn't foresee in the late 1980s these rancorous times within the mainline denominational church which have dominated my ministry years over the last decade. The debates between traditionalists like me and what we call theological progressives got more and more bitter within the church and more personal as the decades went on. Often, progressives argued that the problem was ignorance. If we only knew what they knew, we would see it the way they see it. It was so interesting in those times because I had already read all their stuff. I had to read it in seminary. They made me read all this stuff. And I probably made better grades in seminary than most of them did. Seminary made me do that. I didn't have the world's greatest experience in seminary. But I see now that God was preparing me to defend the gospel. He was preparing me to be able to stand tall. And to have an answer for the hope that is in me. I wouldn't recommend you try it at home. And I'm at a point now when people want to go to seminary, if they are applying to a seminary that I think is apostate, there's zero chance I'm going to recommend that they go there. Zero. But it is what God asked me to do at that time in my life. And what's really cool is the, the problem isn't that I'm ignorant of progressive theology, the problem is that I find it pretty impossible to take seriously. And I can pretty easily tell you why. My theological opponents would often say, you just don't understand. And I would say, I fully understand. I can articulate your position. I just think you're wrong. When we get the word in us, we can defend the faith. Wasn't that what Jude was all about? Wasn't that what Second Peter was all about? 
we're going to have to learn to offer what they call an apologetic. It doesn't mean you apologize for the faith. It means you can defend the faith. Not just The first thing you've got to figure out is what do you believe, and then you've got to ask yourself what sources inform what I believe, and are those sources reliable? Guys, that's good work to do. It's good work to do. And guess what? In, in preparing to be a witness, it will strengthen your own faith. You'll be stronger for the task of it. I think most of us know the difference between dating love and being married love. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? There's dating love and being married love. Sometimes people date until things get hard, and then they start dating someone else until things get hard, and then they start dating someone else until things get hard. And some people do it their whole lives. Marriage is nothing like that because if you really take the vows seriously, you really don't get to quit. You don't get to quit. It's high-reward, labor-intensive enterprise, to say the least. Think about the Christian marriage vows. Just think about what people vow in Christian marriage. Can I, can I paraphrase? I'm going to stick by you even if you turn out to be a real dud. I mean, if you pour it all in a blender and add ice, it's kind of what you got. It's kind of what you got. Nobody forced you to do it either. You stood up there and did it. Most of you were sober. It's a staggering promise. I was getting ready to walk in a wedding once, and uh, I was standing by the groom, and he kind of looked like he was about to pass out. And I said, how you doing, man? He goes, not good. He said, I think I'm going to pass out. I said, cool, you get it. You know, you get it. You're on it. You get it, buddy. There we go. You understand this. It's that guy that's not ready to pass out I'm worried about. You, you're going to be all right. People get married for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. And what does every single person expect? Better, health, and richer. Right? Everybody. What do some people get? Worse, sickness, and poor. It's all they get. Most of us get something in between. And some of us uh, have to iron our own pants for the rest of our lives because <laughs> we can't keep our big mouth shut. <clears throat> but we learn from it and we grow. The problem is in mature love, when you make commitments, you don't realize all this until you do. And it's kind of late. Many people get into marriage with the expectation and aspiration. It's going to be 24-7, 365 dating love. You know, they get out their Phil Collins, Phil Collins albums and play groovy kind of love. It's going to be great. It's like sparrows and hurricanes. And I always think, stop it. It's nothing like that. It's, it's, it's not realistic. And no good will come of it. And people go into churches the exact same way. And it's not realistic. And no good will come of it. Louisville, Illinois. Circa 1985 A.D. I landed a teaching job and a coaching job at the junior high school of North Clay Unit 25, immediately upon my graduation from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. I taught 7th and 8th grade American history. I coached baseball and basketball. 
My teaching job paid about $12,000 each and every year. Coaching drove my annual salary up to a staggering $14,000 a year. And even in 1985, that wasn't a lot of money. Melissa and I had already decided she would stay home with our infant son, Zach. So I was the proverbial breadwinner, and I was a few slices short of a loaf. When summer came around, I was clearly in the market for a summer job. And I quickly found one at the Epworth Methodist Campground just outside of town in Louisville. Anybody ever been to the Methodist Campground? Yeah, Epworth. My job was interesting. When the kids were not in camp, I was to mow and do general maintenance. And when they were in camp, I played my guitar, and I sang, and I taught classes. That was my job. But most of that summer, I was in charge of general maintenance and mowing. So every day, I went to work with no shirt, a pair of overalls, a Toronto Blue Jays baseball hat, and I returned home every day, a sunburned, filthy mess. On my first day, president of the camp, Phil Poe, asked if I knew how to operate a tractor with a mower. I laughed. I said, I was raised in Southern Illinois, and we both laughed. What I neglected to tell him was that I was raised at 403 North Line Street in DuCoin and had never driven a tractor in my whole life. <laughs> now once. So when I arrived alone at the shed, I climbed aboard the tractor that had the mower and fervishly looked for the key to turn so I could just turn on the ignition and the accelerator pedal. And there didn't seem to be one. And finally, I had to walk a full mile into town until I saw a guy, and I had to ask him how to start a tractor. And he did show me, after making me feel like a complete imbecile for 45 minutes, and there was nothing I could do about it. I was just going to have to take it. And all in all, it's a pretty fair trade. During, later that summer, a water, ground, a water line broke underground, and Phil asked if I knew how to dig it up and fix it. I again told him I was from southern Illinois, and we both laughed. That one also resulted in a walk into town. <laughs> Since we only had one car, a 1969 Pontiac Le Mans, someone had given us, Melissa and Zach, my young son, drove me to work each morning, and then they brought me lunch at noon, and then they picked me up at the end of the day. During one particularly hot stretch of weather, the camp was abandoned, except for me, the tractor, and the mower. And I remember it being hotter, six kinds of smoke. And all I could think about was getting an ice-cold Coca-Cola poured over ice that Melissa would soon bring me. You would just get your mouth set for something. I was counting the minutes. I could not wait. When I saw that powder blue muscle car rolling up the dust, I was so excited. I was just so excited. Melissa got out of the car, had everything on a tray for me. And I spotted a sandwich, some chips, and a cookie, blah, blah, blah. And then there it was, perched majestically, towering over the tray, was a glass bottle of Coca-Cola. I raced the tractor over to the car, imagining that I was Charles Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie, getting ready <laughs> to have a big meal after chopping wood to keep his family warm or having saved a milk cow's newborn calf. I... It was a great moment for me. Melissa looked so happy to present me with this picnic plate that she had prepared. And I thanked her profusely, almost. 
Because right when I was about to shower her with thanks, I realized there was no ice. She had not brought ice. And the Coca-Cola was lukewarm. And there were no way that words could adequately describe my disappointment at that moment. And what intended to be a gracious thank you, sweetheart, came out like this. Where's the ice? (laughs) Melissa calmly and summarily put the tray behind the back tire of the car, floored the accelerator, leaving the lunch tray and its contents underneath roughly six inches of dust. Only the neck of the lukewarm Coca-Cola was visible to the naked eye. The sandwich and everything else were under the dust. I watched the dust roll until the car was out of sight in disbelief at what had just happened. I still call that early marriage tactical error number two. (laughs) You learn and you grow, right? You learn and grow. That one also resulted in a trip into town to get ice. I have found nothing in life offers greater rewards, and nothing is more difficult than long-term relationships. These require far more perspiration than aspiration, but they're really incredible. Love for a spouse, a family member, an institution, a town, a nation, a church, requires much more than simple affinity or even concern. Grown-up love requires everything you got. It's not 50-50. It's 100-0. You give everything you got. And it's worth it. Now that I'm kind of an old dude, oldish at best, you say, well, you're just middle-aged. I would be if people lived to be 122. Uh I can tell you one of the greatest joys in life are long-term relationships. Old friends. People you share a history with. It's just so important. And the kind of love for which Paul prays is not a sunny day, everything's going my way, feeling groovy, got the world by the tail kind of love of which almost anyone is capable It's a tear-stained, sweat rolling down your face. Roll up your sleeves. Boy, did I mess up. Calloused hands in the dirt, chained to a prison wall. I want to run, but I'm not kind of love. This is the kind of love that will keep you working at it and growing with it and learning from it your whole life. What is the key to God's work being completed in Christ's church? Grown-up love. Grown-up love. Jesus said to his disciples, people will know you're my disciples because you love each other. Not affinity, grabbing wings at wild wings while you watch baseball kind of love. In the trenches, kind of love. So how do we do that? We decide. We decide. We take the vows. We decide. I'm in. Sometimes the vows look like better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and health. 
And sometimes the vows look like I will uphold with my prayers and presence and gifts and service and witness. We decide. And once we do, joy comes of it. Once you decide, joy comes of it. I'm asked several times a day, how are you? I mean, several times a day. And my response is always fantastic. I made my mind up on that one before I got out of bed. What I bring into each day is a choice. A choice. I can allow circumstances and feelings to run my life and say all kinds of dumb things for which I will pay the rest of my natural life. I can simmer in weak sauce every single day. Or not. Or not. I can do that. And so can you. Or not. I choose not. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live that way. I will choose my attitude. I will not have it chosen for me. Love is not a feeling. It's an intentional act of will. I'm going to say it one more time. Love is not a feeling. It's an intentional act of will. Do you realize the biblical word for love? The illustration of agape is Jesus choosing to die on a cross for us. That is the biblical definition of love. Love's a choice. It's not easy. It's hard. That's why Paul wrote, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's heavy lifting in a fallen world. It's heavy lifting. And sometimes you get it wrong. And sometimes you get cross-threaded. We just do. And sometimes you will end up with just the neck of a warm Coca-Cola showing from the dust pile. But mature love is something that when you choose it, it sort of grows you into it. It sort of grows you into it. Paul knows that a church growing in love is a church that's going to grow in everything else as well. So I would just say to you, as we embark on 500 and begin the act of inviting people next week, let's choose to love. Let's choose to love the people that come here. Let's just choose to love them. Let's already make up our mind on that. We'll introduce them to the Bible and they can decide what to do. <laughs> After that, but let's just love them when they get here. And let's make up our minds. We have 555 people who are now part of 500. You say, what's the difference between 500 and 555? Are you ready? 3,300 more warm invitations which will result in 330 more people visiting for the first time, which will result in 33 more people deciding to join this faith community. Pretty big difference, particularly if your son or your daughter 
or you or someone you love or one of those 33. Thank you for stepping out in faith and inviting. And I think Paul's reminding us in this passage that when people get here, they may not come all scrubbed up and smelling good. So we need to decide we're going to love them now. We're going to love them now. We're going to show them Jesus now. And we won't show them a perfect faith community. Because some of us think we're hilarious when we make comments. And some of us speak when we're disappointed. But we can decide to love. We can learn from our past mistakes. As I have. I don't say stuff like that anymore. I don't. We can learn. And we can grow together. I want you to know that if you invite somebody and they come, we will welcome them and we'll treat them really well. You don't have to be afraid of that. Now, I'm going to speak the truth of the Bible to them and then they can decide whether or not they want to live their lives according to that or not. But it will be done in love and grace. Remember our saying for our church, biblical truth and Christian love. I will not compromise biblical truth because I believe God's best plan for any individual is laid out in the clear and consistent teaching of the Bible. But it must be presented in love. Close with this thought. There were essentially two types of evangelism methods in the history of the church. One was Roman and one was Celtic. The Roman, which was essentially practiced by the Roman Catholic Church, said, learn all of our stuff, go to all of our classes and our catechesis, and if you learn it well enough, to our satisfaction, we'll test you and we'll take a look at you, and if you meet all of our specs, we will allow you into our community. And then there was the Celtic approach, and they just said, come and do life with us. And we hope you'll see enough Jesus in us that you'll want to be a part of this community. And we'll break open the word of God together and it's going to convict all of us. And we'll all have to choose whether to repent of our sin or hold on to our sin. But we'll all do that together. And we'll love you through the process. Never mention that I'm English and Irish. I'm just of the Celtic bent on this one. You invite people. Let's invite them to be a part of this community. Let's love them. Let's introduce them to the Bible. And let's do life together. I think that's what we have to offer. Genuine community. A life of purpose, peace, power, and passion. And there's going to be some folks take us up on it. And you want to know how they are going to know about it because you invited them. You. You invited them. And God's going to grow you in ways you cannot imagine. Because when we choose to love, God grows us into it. For those of you that have already signed up for 500, praise God, we're just going to worship. But for those of you that would still like to do so, you still can do that. 
And if you'd like to do that, there'll be a place out back that you can sign up, put your name on the line, give us a little bit of information. Join our Facebook group. It's just 500. Pretty easy. Just type in 500 and boom, we'll be there. And we're going to share testimonies and all those things, but we would love to commission you tonight. If you've not been commissioned and if you're ready to go on this one, we will commission you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God will use you because you've stepped out in faith in ways you cannot presently imagine. That's what we're doing. I hope, I hope you're so nervous you have trouble swallowing your own spit because it's going to be really hard. And we're going to do it really well. And God is going to use the likes of you and me to launch a revival and a movement in our midst and in our region and in our community. So Josh going to lead you in song. If you would like to be commissioned, come on up, Reverend Carmen, and I will be up here. We'd love to pray with you.